now we've been covering these, these bigger chunks in Acts, and Acts is a weird one because sometimes you'll hit a few verses and sometimes big chunks, and uh, today we're going to hit a big chunk of Acts, and a lot of that is we're coming to the end of Acts, and, and a lot of this is these, these longer narrative sections, uh, and that's, that's why we're doing it this way. In fact, the passage today is, uh, is so long that if we read everything in it, it would probably be half the sermon. Uh, and so what we're going to do is kind of summarize the beginning portions of it, and then we're going to focus in on a part- couple of particular areas where I want to make sure you're seeing it. Now, uh, as always, encourage you, go read this. Like, it is a narrative. I'm not going to read the whole thing here this morning, but uh, you have Bibles. They're on your phones. They're in English. They're in books. You can uh, get them anywhere. People will just hand you free Bibles. It's one of the few things in the world that people just give you for free. Uh, so go back. Read this. Uh, read it at a later point. So... Um, now we're going to start reading on a later portion in, in this. It's going to be in chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 10 through 21, and then afterwards we're going to pray, and, and then we'll, we'll just dig in, okay? So, Acts chapter 24, starting in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, neither in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make make an, an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Oh God, as we embark on this, this portion of your word, In the book of Acts this morning, would you give our hearts conviction where we need conviction? Would you give us hope where we need hope? Will you give us faith that makes us confident to the very core that this is your word to be read, to be heard, to be taught and understood, to be reproofed and corrected by, and and to be trained by for, for righteousness? In short, may we feed on your word this morning, Lord, and find it gives us strength and nourishment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I, when I was growing up, I knew absolutely nothing about President John F. Kennedy and his assassination. And it's hard to believe, really, since I was growing up in Texas, not too far from where this happened. Uh, <clears throat> however, our, our first year of marriage, Laura and I actually watched this movie by Oliver Stone, JFK. Maybe you've seen it before. Uh, and we were living in Dallas at the time. And, and so a few days later, it kind of occurred to us, this whole thing took place just downtown uh, and so we drove down there to, to Daly Plaza to, to see with our own eyes what had happened and it was kind of this amazing experience it was like 
It was kind of like walking onto a, a movie set or um, walking into a time warp of some sort where uh, all these things you just kind of learned about it right there in front of you. And, and, and while we were standing there in, in front of the, the, the sixth, sixth floor museum, uh, this, this man who seemed like a homeless man in a lot of regards actually stops and he begins to explain to us all these crazy conspiracies about how it was that JFK came to be assassinated. Um, you know, that the government authorities were involved in this and that somehow AB, uh, LBJ was, was in, in charge of the whole thing and behind the whole assassination. And, and we're listening to him and it, it almost sounded believable for a while. Um, and to be honest, just to, if you're looking at me like I'm crazy, I've never actually believed any of these theories, but, uh, but ever since, the whole story has just I intrigued me, the, the mystery surrounding this crazy moment in history. Uh, and, and I mention that because our, our passage today also includes a, a conspiracy to murder someone uh, by high-ranking officials, only in this case, it's, it's not just a, uh, a theory, it's reality. Um, and you know, for the, the sake of clarity, let me just remind you, conspiracy, because we have all these ideas, right? Uh, conspiracy means a secret plan by a group of people to do something unlawful or unharmful or, 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 and harmful. Now, this is the situation. Like I said, we kind of jumped forward in the text and we're coming back. So the situation as we begin here in Acts 23 is that Paul is still in Jerusalem and he's still in jail. And, and there arises this conspiracy then, uh, a group of people that is made up by over 40 Jewish men who get together and they hate Paul and they hate the gospel so much that they make this, this oath, um, this curse-like oath saying, we will neither eat nor drink until we have killed that man. That's their plan. Uh, and what's really surprising then is that they even get the chief priest involved, right? Uh, here's this man who is supposed to be leading them spiritually, but, but he too sees Paul as this huge threat to his way of life, a huge threat to his position and culture, um, a, a huge threat to everything he believes. And at some point, he becomes willing to violate what he knows to be the moral will of God to get the results that he desires. And, and what's sad then is that these, these Jewish leaders, they, they know the law very well very well. But it's just, it's just head knowledge. Somehow it's, it's disconnected. And, and here, you know, we, they now find themselves in a situation where they're actually it's con uh, in a conspiracy to kill a man, which is certainly violating the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, right? And, and the plan to accomplish this murder, uh, the plan is for the chief priest to say, I'd like to examine Paul more thoroughly. And, and, and that means they're going to have to take Paul from, from where he is in jail, and they're going to move him through the city until they bring him to the court of the Sanhedrin, which is in the southwest corner of the temple. And, and the hope is that in the transportation, we're going to have opportunity to, to kill him, um, which is interesting. Um, you know, speaking of the JFK thing, that's exactly the way that uh, the accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was, was actually killed by Jack Ruby is when they were transporting him. But anyway, in our passage today, though, um, this means that the chief priest is premeditatedly and intentionally making this calculated lie since he had absolutely zero intention on actually re-examining Paul. Um, he's part of it. And thus he's breaking the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That is, we are not to lie. Now, 
here's the scary thing. I think we look at it from this perspective of like, oh, terrible Jews, right? Like, what are they doing? But the truth is, any one of us could act the same way apart from the grace of God. And, and one of the things we see here is that this is what happens when we forget that the end does not justify the means. Um, you, you can't just throw this away when you're trying to accomplish something, right? Um, there's many enemies of the faith in our culture today. They're just, they're just is. And, and it might be tempting for us to, to try to discredit them uh, or to harm them and to do so in ways that might be effective and yet contrary to the Word of God, uh, you know, to the Word of God where we look for our moral compass. Uh, you can imagine it though, right? <clears throat> Slander, lying, deception of all various sorts just to, to try to make a, an enemy of the gospel to, uh, to look worse than they might actually be. And it's moments like, <clears throat> like this where we must trust that no matter what battles it, it looks like Christianity is losing, that, that we remember that the war has already been won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Boy, there's power in remembering that. And, and here in Acts 24, we're learning that, that God in his great providence then actually provides this way of rescue for, for Paul from this conspiracy. See, it, it turns out that, that Paul had a nephew in town. Uh, and he was part of that Jewish community that Paul grew up in. And so, of course, uh, it gets back to them that, that this conspiracy is happening. And he goes to Paul in jail and he begins to tell Paul. Uh, you remember in, in Roman law or under Roman law, a prisoner was not provided three meals a day. They didn't have a subscription to cable TV. Uh, all their, everything they needed to survive was brought from the outside, from friends and families, their necessities for life. <clears throat> so it's very normal to have friends and families <clears throat> visit you in prison. Uh, and so Paul's nephew brings this message, and then he sends the nephew, his nephew to go talk to the Roman tribune. Uh, that's the Roman official who's in charge of Paul. And, and, and the tribune then hears it and tells the nephew, tell no one about this. Just, just stay silent. And, and he quickly then decides he's going to send Paul from Jerusalem to a city called Caesarea uh, with this massive army. You can imagine this. There's no, no one knows it's happening, and yet 200 soldiers, um, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, which I assume is just soldiers with spears, right? Uh, and they take this letter to the Roman governor named Felix, and, and in this letter is just a summary of here's everything that's happened so far, and here's Paul. People were going to kill him. Um, and, and when they get there, Felix says, you know what? I will hear your case. I will listen to it as soon as the people that are accusing you actually arrive. And, and so, um, you know, before we move on, though, I, 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 want, I want you to think about this. What do you think sustained Paul in these moments? I mean, can you imagine just the loneliness of being in prison and here you are being rushed out of a town because the people hate you so much that they have conspired to murder you. Um, these moments where it feels like everything in your life is just falling apart. And you see, the reason that Paul can stay calm here in these moments is um, it's found in that last verse that Pastor Dunning went through last week. All the way back to chapter 23, verse 11. And there in that verse, um, the Lord says to Paul, it's actually the Lord, in one way or another, is speaking to Paul, and he says, take courage. Take courage. God is saying, don't be afraid, even though this situation will be scary. And, and the reason the Lord tells Paul to take courage, as he goes on and he continues, he says that, uh, that he will preserve Paul's life until he makes it to Rome so that he can proclaim the gospel in Rome for him, right? And so God's made this promise, and in everything in Paul's life now looks like God can't keep his promise. 
Um, and so as these conspiracies arise to kill Paul, he just has to remember this, that God has promised he will survive, and, and that the plans of God always trump the plans of man. And it is so difficult at times, you know, even for us, to believe the promises, promises of God in his word. But there is wonderful peace that comes from our doing so. You see, um, there's a similar situation, Joshua 1.9, you know it, everyone always tries to apply it way too specifically. Um, but here, you know, God is commissioning Joshua, and he's encouraging Joshua, and he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See, there is, there is comfort to you, for you, Christian, in the promises of God to go with us. It's, it's like a child who's left a toy out in the yard, and at night they're, you know, go get your toy. And they just want you to go with them, right? There is safety, there is protection in that, uh, even as you go into what might be a scary situation. And you know, it's not just in Joshua we see this. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 tells us, keep your life free from money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and it appeals back to this, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All those stresses that come from life, right? Contentment, money, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And there's also great comfort in, in knowing that, that God will guard your faith until it is absolutely complete. First Peter 3.5 paints this picture beautifully of, of this image of God guarding over our faith. Uh, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your salvation is being guarded by God Almighty. Uh, or how about the promise of, of Philippians 1.6, which tells us, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I'll give you one more. John 10, 28-29. Jesus Christ himself is speaking here, and he says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, it's the promises of God that sustained Paul in this dangerous and fallen world that he was living in. And it's the promises of God that sustain you and I when we are living a life of faith in this dangerous and fallen world that we live in today. And so then as chapter 23 comes to an end, uh, comes to an end Paul is, is being guarded. He's being guarded in Herod's uh, praetorium, which was the official residence of the governor. Interesting, the governor's house actually had prison cells connected to it, and so they're real close there. Uh, and here Paul sits guarded by Roman soldiers, and, and this is where that's the details of the life, right? But if you zoom out a little bit, you see that ultimately what's happening is God is, is guarding him. God is guarding Paul's life, and the soldiers are just the means by which God is doing so. And then as chapter 4 begins, or 24 begins, we won't go all the way back to 4, right? Uh, as chapter 24 begins uh, with Ananias, the high priest in Jerusalem. He goes to Caesarea, uh, and the other Jewish leaders come with him. And they bring this other guy who had nothing to do with anything. His name is Tertullus. Uh, he's like a, a lawyer. He's speaking on behalf of him, like he's going to do all of our talking for us. 
And, and then the bulk of this chapter is actually a legal procedure. In fact, the first nine verses, this is the, the prosecution. They're going to set up their case against Paul. He did this and this and this and this and whatnot. Uh, and then verses 10 through 21, it's when Paul actually gets to give a defense. That's the section we read. And then finally, verses 22 and 23, Governor Felix, uh, functioning like a judge, actually renders a verdict. So uh, let's look at this. The first thing is the prosecutor, uh, the first thing the prosecutor does is praise the governor for peace. Um, it's interesting because, you know, we've got all these other histories of the time, and, and all the other histories that record this era speak of Felix. So he had an eight-year reign, and he is remembered by them uh, as, as a, a reign of violence and repression. And here he is being praised, thank you for peace, right? Uh, he might be kissing up to him. And then in verse 5, we see them insult Paul. They're referring to him as a plague. How many of you have ever been referred to as a plague? It's not real common, right? Isn't it great, though, that he is referred to as a plague? You know, that, that someone would refer to, to any of us as a Christian plague, because when enemies of the gospel say you're a plague, it sounds like an insult, but, but that means that the Lord is working faith in the hearts of many. It means God is giving growth to the gospel seed which you have sown. Also in verse 5, you, you see there it refers to Christians as Nazarenes. Uh, this is where the denomination, the Nazarenes, get their name from. He call them here that uh, because, remember, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? So followers of Jesus. Um, so then their case against Paul can be summarized as this. One, he causes riots. That's the one accusation. Two, he's the leader of an unsanctioned sect, uh, religion. Uh, and three, he has uh, tried to profane the temple by bringing a Gentile in it. These are his crimes that have him in prison right now. So Governor Felix in verse 10 nods to Paul. Uh, I love that that's the way it is. He doesn't even say anything, just something like that. I don't know. Um, and it's now his turn to give this defense. And interesting, Paul prefaces by saying, I cheerfully make my defense. There's no other explanation there. Uh, you know, it seems he's just glad that I have an opportunity to defend myself. I don't know if we, we appreciate when we have opportunity to defend ourselves as much as he does, but he finally gets to, to speak truth into the situation. Uh, and it's this sort of, you know, thank you for letting me defend myself against these false accusations. Now, um, like I said before, this is the portion we read and when we began this morning. And so here, Paul is pointing out that he was in Jerusalem. But he wasn't there very long, a mere, a mere 12 days, and that uh, while he was there, he was minding his own business. He wasn't speaking to any crowds. He was simply going through the, the Jewish ritual. If you remember that, the church in Jerusalem asked him to do this, and he, he willingly did so. Uh, he points out, I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't stirring anyone up at all. In fact, the guys who like, attacked me aren't even here. They're the actual people accusing me. Um, the Jews from Asia haven't even shown up here. And then in verse 14, he says this. He says, this I confess to you. Right? Here's what I did do. Uh, and what's he confess? Uh, you see it there in verse 14. I worship the God of our fathers. I worship the God of our fathers. Paul's making clear that, that Christianity, or as it was commonly called here in this text, even in the time, uh, the way, uh, is not a separate religion, but it was in alignment with Judaism. It was the fulfillment, you know? And, it, and you know, it seems like this odd thing from the point out, but. Uh, but again, he's trying to show that Christianity is the fulfillment of Ju Judaism. Um, that Jesus is, is the, the Savior they've been hoping for. Uh, and also just to show Felix this, that, that Christianity is connected to Ju Judaism. Because here's the deal. Um, you had to be an official religion that was recognized by the, by the Roman law. 
And so one of the things that Jews are trying to say is, look, this is a religion that's not, not officially under the law. You should throw them all in prison or whatever. Uh, and, and Paul's saying, no, we're, we're kind of the fulfillment of Judaism, so we are protected under the law. Um, and that's why he's saying, you know, we both believe the law. We both believe the prophets. We both have this hope and the resurrection to come for all people. And so then in verse 21 here, when Paul says, Paul says this, he says, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you. What he really means is specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the one event that has Paul where he is right now. Isn't it always the resurrection? I mean, you can walk out those doors and talk to anyone about Jesus. Great guy. But the second, the second you like really confess that you believe you know, he, he died, actually really died in history, and he came back to life, actually really came back to life and in actual history, and then he still lives today, uh, that's where people really begin to think you must be nuts. But that's the truth. So the last thing we see here is that Felix gives this verdict, which is not much of a verdict, is it? It's simply, well, we'll deal with this later. He just postpones it. Um, they're waiting to hear from the Roman tribune from, from uh, Jerusalem, uh, Lysia, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Uh, no idea if he ever shows up. Never mentioned. In fact, Paul staying in prison gives us the idea he never does. Uh, and in the meantime, Paul's going to remain in prison, which is connected to, the, to the, the, the governor's house. Now, there's still three verses left here uh, in chapter 24. I'm going to read them to you. Follow along, starting in verse 24. It says this. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And so this Roman governor asked Paul, come speak with me, come speak with my wife, uh, and his wife's name, Drusilla. Uh, that's not a name we see very often. It might make a comeback someday, probably not after you hear the story. Um, she's the daughter of, of Herod Agrippa. Uh, we learned about him in Acts chapter 12 when he killed a number of Christians. So Christianity is not a new thing to her. She's certainly heard of it at this point. Um, it's also widely believed that she actually dies in the volcano eruption at Pompeii. Uh, she's one of the background people in the movie, I suppose. Um, so, <clears throat> what do you think Paul talks to them about? I mean, you, you're standing before the governor who can kill you at any moment or set you free, and what do you talk about? He talks about, about Jesus. You ever, you ever notice that almost everything Paul talks about comes back to Jesus? Um, which is interesting, you know, you know, what do our conversations always come back to? I, I know my answer, you know, it's, all, it's almost always whatever I'm interested at the time, Laura gets the bulk of this or the, the brunt of this, you know, the negative aspects of this. I, I tend to get obsessed with some topic that I've just learned about and, uh, you know, and I just start to learn everything I can about it and that's the stuff that comes out, you know, it was coffee at one time and tea and baseball history or bicycles. Uh, as recently I've been looking at like NASCAR history, which is way more redneck than I ever dreamed. Uh, <clears throat> that right off the bat. But, uh, you know, one of the things I, I've learned, though, is that whatever my interest is at the time, people don't always want to talk about that. 
you see their faces glaze on over, like, when is he going to stop? Uh, and I've kind of learned that, and so I've kind of learned not to do it. Um, and, and one of the things I love about Paul here is he doesn't care at all whether you're interested in Jesus. All of his conversations just, just come back to it. He, he's almost like, like the essential oil people. Not all of them. Okay, I've actually had people give me them for my throat when I was preaching before. Wonderful. So not all of them, but, but you've likely encountered that essential oil person. You know, my throat hurts, uh, and they tell you, well, here's a little mint that'll fix it right up. Well, great, thanks, that really works. Uh, but then you tell them, you know, I've fractured every bone in my back, and they're like, a little sandalwood will fix that right up. You know? Uh, and then it's like, I, I saw a great movie last night, you know what goes great with a great movie? A little bergamot oil. Uh, that kind of thing. Only the big difference here is that what Paul's talking about is absolutely true. It's absolutely life-giving, right? And so even if these people he's talking to look like him, like he's the crazy essential oil person, it's real in this case. Always real. All of it's real. Uh, also, Jesus is infinitely more important than any other topic we, we tend to talk about. Now, when, when Paul speaks to Felix and his wife uh, about Jesus, it's more than just uh, kind of that sentimental, uh, Felix, I feel that Jesus loves you. What do you think? You know, it's not just, just like that. You know, there's this substance here. There's, there's something going on here. The text tells us that Paul is reasoning about righteousness. Righteousness. That's like justice which is certainly going to be an interest, of interest to a guy who's constantly making these huge decisions that are either just or unjust. In fact, he's in the process right now of making a very unjust decision against Paul. It's also a particular interest for, for Felix and his wife because um, their, their story, their romantic story, is that she divorced her old husband uh, and, and came to him. And, and so this was one of those things that surely would have come up. It also tells us here that, that Paul is reasoning about self-control. That's a word we just tend to throw away, but self-control in the New Testament typically has to do with sexual morality. Um, I think we can relate to that in our society, right? Uh, that seems to be one of the forefront issues that we hear about constantly. How do we truly decide right from wrong? Uh, you see, many in our culture today are, are driven by what is sentiment rather than reason, right? We all like, yes, reason, 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 and then we make all these huge decisions about the world based on sentiment. Uh, even professing Christians who often decide what's right from wrong by what they feel should be right or wrong. Um, it's on par really with, you know, building a, a house on a foundation of, of jello. Uh, you might look at it and, you know, it, it's not really a foundation. It kind of looks like one, but it's not really a foundation. And, you know, the more reasonable response for all who are created in the image of God would be to, to study God's word, to learn from God's word, and then to embrace that to shape our actual ethics, right? Not to, to settle for just the foolishness of sentimental morality. I was reading R.C. Sproul recently, and he wrote of, of this similar. He said, God's law is the absolute objective norm that is to govern the behavior of, of all people. I thought that interesting, all people. It's not a norm hidden from us, but it has been revealed. So then we have the responsibility to know and, and to do what righteousness requires. And what I, I love about Paul's interaction in this text here is, is, is these topics that he discusses, 
These aren't the things that we tend to think of as, as gospel topics, right? Um, they're just not the things you tend to think of as, as gospel because they're, they're in a different area. You're talking about righteousness. That's not gospel, right? Um, but, but one of the things we see here is that all, gospel, all topics can be gospel topics. Uh, you know, if someone wants to talk to you about homosexual marriage, make that a gospel topic. Someone wants to talk to you about gender identity, and they might, uh, make that a gospel topic. Someone wants to talk to you about Trump or Hillary, run. Just kidding. <laughs> Find a way to include the gospel in that conversation. Um, face-to-face conversation. Now, if you're thinking that uh, talking about Jesus while discussing those kind of topics just, just isn't really realistic, like it sounds good in theory, but you can't really do that, then, I, then I'm with you because I hear that and I think, okay, great, 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 how do you do that? Um, and, and let me tell you something that I'm finding is, is helpful, and, and it's to, to just kind of mentally review the conversations you have, okay? Not to go home and beat yourself up, I could have said that, I should have said that, why didn't I say that? Uh, but just to review it because it's a way of kind of practicing okay, next time I'm in this situation, how might I have, have, have included the gospel in some aspect, just spoken about Christ in some way, you know? Just, just ask yourself, you know, self, how could I have pointed to Jesus here? Or self, I guess you call yourself self. Self, what's the least cheesy way I could have asked them questions that led them to consider life from an eternal perspective? Things of that nature. Um... And doing an exercise like this takes the pressure off you in the, in the moment, right? Uh, um, and at the same time, it just it helps train us for future interaction. Uh, we went to this block party last night, um, and we had these conversations. And, um, you know, people were asked, what do you do? And I'm a pastor. And I'm like, okay, so now I can't talk about Jesus or it's going to be, I'm the, I'm the oil salesman, right? Um, but it was a, a helpful thing, you know, on my way home. And, and, and I, when we got home, just, just thinking through the conversations we had and thinking, okay, uh, as we talked about this, like, where, where was the gospel in that? Was it in my conversation at all? How could I have? And it gave me that slowness of mind to really, really wrestle through some of those. Um, you might also ask someone else, listen, I had this interaction with this guy at work, um, and this guy said to me, whatever. And you just ask that question, you know, how, how could I have better used this opportunity um, to point them to, to eternal things? So, okay, there is one more topic here we see it in verse 25. Paul discusses with them the, the coming judgment, right? So he's talked about um, two things so far, and now it's the coming judgment. Uh, the judgment that we'll all face before the Creator, and the content there is completely lacking. There is no idea. We don't know what it is. We don't know what he said. But we do know how Felix responds to this. You see that? The text says Felix was alarmed. That's from that... Greek word meaning fear, you know, Felix became very afraid. Why do you think he was alarmed? You know, is it the idea of, of death and judgment that scared him? Was he dwelling on the evil things he had done? Did he, did he kind of get this feeling that Paul could see through him? You know that feeling where you just think, oh, they know me. Um, we don't know. We don't know exactly what went down here, but, but, but he sends Paul away from his presence. Just go away. Um, and we see this, you know, some hear of the judgment and they hear of the gospel and, and, and believe. And others respond like Felix here with unbelief. Uh, 
Poor Felix. I mean, we see him as the villain here, but poor Felix. He is so focused on the, the concerns of the world in this moment that it's really very sad. I mean, we don't know for sure what, what became of Felix. I mean, I hope he came to faith, but there's nothing in Scripture or written anywhere else to give us any confidence that he, confidence that he did. And now he's been dead. You know, as we look at this, as we read this, he's been dead 2,000 years. And what he thought was important, it's not. I mean, it's a similar story, a little more recent. Uh, a guy named Kenneth Clark. You may or may not know of him. Um, uh, he was a man who was internationally known for a television series called Civilization. I've never actually watched the series. Um, Kenneth lied and, uh, or lived and died without faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but he did write a, an autobiography before that happened. And he tells this story uh, about a time that he once visited a, a church, uh, an old, beautiful church. And... Um, he says that he believed, you know, at that moment he had this overwhelming religious experience. Uh, and he writes to that. He says, my whole being was irradiated. Ir my whole being was irradiated by, the, by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had known before. Now, that's, that's not the gospel. It's just not. But here's why I share this story. Of, of that experience, he said that if he allowed himself to be influenced by it, he knew that he would have to change. Because his family would think that, that he'd lost his mind. And he had this fear that maybe that, that joy that he experienced would, would prove to be an illusion anyway. And, and as he's writing in, about this in his autobiography, he reflects back on the situation and, and himself. He writes this. He says, I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. And, and it's sad because we hear that and, and, and we know that so, that so long as man or woman is alive, it is not too late to look to Jesus and believe the gospel. See, eternal perspective helps us to understand the true value of Jesus. To understand that it's superior to the fleeting pleasures. And when I say fleeting pleasures, I mean both the good life, right, and sinful things. We tend to always put that in the sinful category, but Jesus is superior to both. Uh, so let this be a, a warning to us also. It's a dangerous thing to delay thinking about the bigger issues of life. Sin and death and judgment and gospel. It's a dangerous thing because life is shorter than we know and death is certain and can come at absolutely any moment. Now, Felix then keeps Paul in prison. Every so often he summons them to him. Uh, they talk. We don't know anything of the content of what they talked about, but we do know that he's hoping Paul will give him a bribe uh, that will get him released. Paul never pays the bribe. And, and the crazy thing is, you look at verse 27. We're, you know, we're cruising through this text, but you look at verse 26, and we learn, or 27, we learn that Paul stays in this situation for two more years. Two years of jail, two years of unjustly just waiting. Um, we even learn that Felix leaves him in prison, even as he leaves office and someone else comes in, he leaves him there. And the only reason for this is that it's a favor to the Jews because they think if they can just lock him away, that they can lock the gospel away, right? Um, all this injustice. And you think back to Paul. It would have been easy for Paul to lose hope in this moment and think, you know what? Maybe God's not really going to do it. You know, maybe I'm going to be in here until my last breath. 
And, and it's moments like that where we, we kind of come back to that. You know, it was necessary for him to, to take courage. Uh, to take courage by believing the promise of God to deliver him into Rome so that he might speak the gospel there like God said he would. So you and I, we're, we're going to face frustrations too. Injustices. We're going to experience pain. Um, pain of living in a fallen world where, where cancer and heart attacks and freak accidents and wars and poverty and suffering of, of all variety actually exist. And so it's, it's necessary that we too look to the promises of God as we walk through life to, to trust that, that he who began a good work in us, a good work of faith in us, that he will bring it to completion. That he will deliver us safely to, into his eternal kingdom. You know, may we, may we never forget when life is tough that we do not always know what God is doing. When we look at the details of our lives, you know, it's hard to know what God is doing at any given moment. But, but faith finds rest in the fact that God knows. And since God knows, we can trust him completely no matter what's going on in our lives. Let's pray. God, I... I thank you, thank you for making us creatures who can reason in their minds. And so I thank you also for the reasonableness of the faith that you give us. We ask that you'd make us to trust you in every situation of our lives, even when it's difficult to know the reasons why certain things happen. Lord, make us so confident in your love and your eternal perspective, or the eternal aspects of your love, that we do not lose hope when we find ourselves in painful and frustrating circumstances. Uh, and that we are not distracted by the joys of life that we also experience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.